Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. Today, I'm very happy to welcome a special guest, Alison Graham. If you're going through hell, keep going became a mantra for Alison Graham during her decade of hell. She had a botched surgery that caused relentless nerve pain, followed by several surgeries and hundreds of doctor's appointments. Next was a string of loved ones dying and eight, if you can believe it, major injuries. This led to other emotional, mental, and financial challenges. Even so, she kept a smile on her face, built a successful multi-six-figure consulting company, and found joy. Now she's released the book, Married My Mom, Birthed a Dog, How to Be Resilient When Life Sucks, and is on a mission to help others fight back when life attacks, like a resiliency ninja. Allison, welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. Thank you for having me. Tell us about... The uh, resiliency ninja that it just captivates it's it captivates me completely. You know, it's it was this mental image I had, and you know, so many people may feel this that their life, you know, they're going along, and like imagine you're in a Hollywood movie and and you're a ninja, and you know, you, people see you walking down the street, and you're calm, cool, collected, and you know, nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you see these assailants, and you know, go in, step into the alley, and you have to try, you know, fight them, and then you know, you win, and then you keep going along the street. And in many ways, that's how I felt for my decade of hell was that every time I was doing anything, it felt like there was this other challenge that came through, uh, you know, whether it was somebody I loved dying, whether it was the surgeries or the doctor's appointments. And yet I was serving, you know, multinational companies and looking like I had it all put together. And behind the scenes, I was living this fight. And when I, when I realized how to not make it a struggling fight, but a, a fight from confidence and a place, then that really made me what I call the resiliency ninja. And, uh, you know, you can operate from joy and no matter what the challenges are. Can you take us back and, and bring us along your journey? Sure. It's, uh, and, and, you know, when I tell the story, it's, I, I, it's easy to look back and, and I want people to really know it's not from a place of, whoa, whoa, look at me, you know, woe is me. It's really from a place of, we all go through challenges and we can all overcome and succeed no matter what. So it really, I think the first domino that fell for me was when I lost my dad. And I know that's a natural progression of life. And yet, because he was so close to me, I really, there was a void in my life. And the hardest part was I didn't have the tools to recoup from grief. It went on, my grandma died, and again, another natural part of life, but I was still grieving my dad, and I really didn't ever get my footing back at that point. Soon after, you know, there were some breakups with some really not great men in there and and things like that, Uh, but I had the surgery. There was a simple cyst it happened before I went in, the surgery was very easy, a little bit of healing and I was on my way. And so that was what I was expecting again for the surgery. But unfortunately I went in and it became very complicated. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, I wake up the next day in the hospital with this severe, like, the best way I can describe it is like the serrated edge knife that was like just stabbing and twisting into me. And, I had no idea at that moment that that was going to be my new sensation for my life. And it was, 
difficult and trying and all those different things that you would imagine. But I, I was in denial and I just kept going. And um, then there were other surgeries. And of course, then the people died all in a row. And yeah, I don't know where, like we could talk about it. It'd take 10 years because it was 10 years of hell. And then the, uh, the, the injuries was like, I was beating myself up because there was so much judgment and I know you talk a lot in the work that you do with your coaching and everything about how unhealthy judgment is in comparison. Yes. And I was living that. And I think what was happening was the universe was playing along. Like, you're going to hate yourself. You're going to beat up on you. Let me help. Oh, that's what you want. More and more and more of that. And it was when I started to recognize that, you know, the way I think the way I act, all of those things can influence how we show up in the world and that those negative things don't have to keep coming at me. I can deal with them. Mm. That was the resiliency ninja journey. So when you had that realization that ultimately there was, I, did you feel like there was a message in it for I you? I did. Well, now I do. Now I'm like, there's no reason I went through that decade of hell if I wasn't going to help other people overcome their obstacles. <laughs> like, I feel like there was just so much in really, you know, compact time frames that I, I created skills to be able to still serve my clients, still have relationships, still, you know, f- operate from a place of joy even though all of that was there and being able to do that. I think one of the hardest things for me coming out the other side is when I meet people who've been following me for a decade on social media or seen me on TV or on the right here, listen to me every week on the radio and they're like, Oh yeah. So like life has been pretty easy for you. And Mm. A little did they know because I was so good of hiding the truth of what I was going from through mm. from my professional community. They didn't know. And I think that that led to a judgment that some of these people who I was talking to had about themselves. And it was really important for me originally to open up the conversation about what you see on the outside is not an accurate reflection of what's happening on the inside. I've had experience with that myself and I got to a point where I just couldn't do it any longer. Like it wasn't that I wanted all of the misery to be everybody's business, although some of it was in the public eye, but the disconnect between, it was like putting on a mask to go to work. I'm thinking particularly back, you know, this would be 15, 20 years ago, going to work in a sales position that I had. It was a corporate sales, very high expectations, very high performance levels. Um, And I was always very motivated by not just the financial rewards, but the travel rewards associated with performing at a high level there. But on the inside, I was, I had just, I had come from teaching high school which is an environment where I always knew where I was making a difference into the corporate structure complete with politics and, you know, different varying lifestyles and value systems. And there was such a disconnect that I would have characterized myself as um, 
not clinically depressed, although I did seek help and take medication to be able to, um, what I call, and you use this phrase too, power through that environment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because the freedom is the right word. So when I came out with the book, you know, married my mom, birthed the dog, people were like, what does that mean? I'm like, it's okay. It's a joke. <laughs> um, but it was a big part of my story, my mom and, and my dog, Winston. And when people knew that I was in pain, it didn't change how I think they perceived me or anything like that. What happened was for me, I didn't feel like I had to hide anymore. So I would go to a client and, you know, it would, one of the things my mom did to help me out in the early days, especially for about five years, is she would drive me to my client gigs because driving on the highway for long distances was significantly challenging for, it would aggravate and intensify my pain. And then performing also intensifies my pain. So anything I do of intensity tends to have a trade-off on the other end, I've got to deal with the nerve pain. And so, you know, even what I would do is I'd go in and I'd, I'd, it'd be all adrenaline. So I'd spend, you know, the workshop with these people and they wouldn't know anything was wrong. And I would get in the car. So I'd text mom and say, okay, I'm walking out of the venue. She'd pull up to the front door. I would get in the car and I would literally sit up straight, like still on adrenaline until I got out of the parking lot. And then I would just fall asleep and crash. Mm. And it was even like this, you know, public, private persona, where even until I was out of the parking lot when I thought nobody could see me, mm. I was still on. And that exhaustion of doing it. Now, the interesting thing is now I've learned long workshops are not part of my business model because they just take too much out of me physically. Now I do have clients who I will do that for. I just charge them triple. <laughs> Which is okay. Um, and I really shine when I'm on stage, like as a, a keynote speaker, 45 minutes, an hour, 75 minutes, you know, sharing with an audience, helping them inspire, and then having the book as a follow through that is my energy, like where my energy is really, really good. I don't have the five-day crash after I do that. Whereas the way I was running my business before was I was having these day, like days-long crashes where I would have to hide out and not see anybody. Which is just not sustainable for any other part of your life. It might be on one hand, on one level, great for business, but certainly not ideal for sustaining either, you know, relationships, healthy lifestyle, how you are with yourself as, right. in terms of ease. Um, would you say that you learned to or had to adapt your business to be able to serve? Like, I'm assuming from how you're speaking that you still experience this pain now. I do. Yes. And so I do to both. I've adapted my business, number one, mm -hmm. and I do still have pain. So if we look at the business first, and then we'll talk about pain, because I think that's a really important conversation to have with people for your listeners. But the business, one of the reasons I think having, you know, is being a solopreneur and, you know, if the people who are out there listening are, uh, it's such a, a privilege and it, it's also very scary because you wonder where your you know, next paycheck is going to come from, right? Or where next month's going to come from. 
But what it did is it gave me permission to build the life I wanted. Now, here, here's when I, the comparison of pre-resiliency ninja versus resiliency ninja. I had to give myself permission to look at my business objectively and let go of the things that I thought I had to do. So what I mean by that is I thought I was only ever going to get hired for training workshops that were eight hours long. And that assumption kept me on this, you know, fortunately I could, you know, it was with the big companies, I could charge them well, it sustained my company, but it was such a lag afterwards that it wasn't serving me personally. The interesting thing is, is when I moved more into the keynote model, you just have to sell them a keynote. <laughs> you just sell them something different. And the online model, what to support those keynotes, what happened was I'm still selling the same stuff. It just takes me a eighth of the time to deliver the work. And that mm-hmm. doesn't irritate the body as much. Yeah. It's a totally different structure and framework. Right. And at one point I was like married to the fact that no, this is the way the business has to happen. Yes, there are keynotes and yes, there, but you have to have training because that's where the money is. And, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. And, you know, even some of my consulting clients I loved and some of them I was on retainer with and, and I would get bogged down and, you know, saying, you know, we'd be in a meeting and I'd be like, oh, I'll create that report and I'll write that for you and I'll do that. And then it would drain my energy. So I had to allow myself to say, no, I'm not going to write that for them. That's not what they're hiring me to do. And it also means looking at yourself as a holistic organism to say that it can't sustainably be all business all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us, especially Mm -hmm. when we're experiencing some kind of uh, success, doing one thing really well have a hard time shifting out of it because there was risk to get there in the first place, especially when it's your own creation, your own business. But then sometimes transforming or transitioning that business could be even scarier than the initial because we get caught. I'm thinking of a book I read recently called The Big Leap. And uh, the author, Gay Hendricks, um, talks about like being stuck in the zone of excellence where When you're in your zone of excellence versus your zone of, oh, I can't remember right now, so I'm going to embarrass myself or edit it in afterwards. No, (laughs) no. Actually, you know what? You're just going to encourage other people to read her book. To go and read. So she appreciates it. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. So so when you get stuck in this zone of excellence versus, I think it's zone of inspiration or um, zone of where your superpower is, it can be a very safe place to, to hide out and hang out, but you're never feeling fulfilled. You had something else come along to say, knock, knock, something here needs to change. Absolutely. Like the universe gave a great big, well, actually several. So what's interesting is I wasn't, if you look before the decade of it, not dad dying. I mean, that's out of anybody's control. That's a true adversity, but the result of the surgery and all the injuries and accidents and things, it's not like I only had eight major injuries that were, that was just what was in that decade of hell. The decade before that, there were another probably God, I don't even know. Like I was sort of known as a bit of a klutz 
And if there was an injury to happen, like even when I, you know, was younger, it was probably going to happen to me at that time. Um, and there were a lot of signs. There were a lot of signs. There were a lot of really bad choices I made with men um, before that, like con men and, you know, mentally and verbally, you know, sort of abusive type men uh, threatening the physical, but I didn't, uh, thank God, didn't have that in the end. But there was just a lot of, there were a lot of signs that if I would have been at a younger age, more in touch with myself, mm. more self-confident to take and, you know, a hold of that and actually really own what, like if I would have been grounded and centered and confident in my own power, I never would have gotten myself into the positions. And I think that, you know, the day the surgery happened, it would happen the weekend after I was with a man who I shouldn't have been with, right? Who was not healthy for me. And um, I went in for the surgery on the Monday and, you know, that was it. So I, I think had I been more in touch with the you know, my, my doctor, Tony, who I see, who's at the pain center, he's like, you know, the Allison, the universe is busy. It's not giving you signs. <laughs> I'm like, I think it is. <laughs> I enjoyed, I enjoyed in the book. So Tony, Dr. Tony is Dr. T in the book. Yes. Yeah. And I got some great chuckles when I was reading about the dynamic between the two of you. I imagine they're quite lively conversations for starters. <laughs> and yeah. clearly he's provided you with a tremendous amount of value and support. And yet you do fundamentally disagree on some world views or universal views. I want to circle back to um, something you said earlier. You said true obstacle. And I think you do a wonderful job in the book of delineating between stress, obstacle, and adversity. Yes. Can you take us through that paradigm? I'm so glad you brought this up because it's one of the things that is resonating and is so important for me to use every day in my own world as well. So stress, obstacles, and adversity are on a continuum of challenges. And if you think about it, um, what, what started this was when I um, went back and I, uh, the story I like to tell when I'm on stage, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. It's not in the book because it happened after the book. I went back to the really heavy time of challenges for me. So when everybody was passing away, uh, my fifth surgery, the medications, I was moving. I'd uh, finished a contract with one of my main jobs. I was starting a new business, like all of that. And I did a quote unquote stress test on the internet. And the stress was, uh, my score was 734. And people say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, there was a legend next to when you get your result that said, if there, you have a score above 330, seek professional help immediately. <laughs> and so I, what, what was really interesting is I was like, oh, wow, it really was a tough time. But more importantly, it was bucketing everything in the stress framework. And, you know, we wear stress as a society as a real sort of sense of pride. Like, I'm so stressed out and I'm, you know, and it's like, good for you. You're keeping up. You're busy. And I don't believe that's true. I think stress, obstacles, adversity, here's the difference. Stress is an internally driven expectation to do too much in too little time with too few resources. 
at the end of the day, and people don't like to hear this, but it's your fault. Your internal messenger of bullshit, uh, we can talk about that later, um, you know, the mind, the way that you're framing things, your expectations, those are causing stress. And the beauty is we can shift that by shifting your attitude, your expectations, and help you become less stressed. Now, obstacles, on the other hand, are situations that are presented in front of you. They could be internally driven. They could be externally driven. But the key with these is that they're actually tangible in the sense that you can move them out of the way, you can jump over them, you can ignore them if that's the right path, you can blow them up, you can you know, give them to somebody else. There, there are a lot of ways that we can deal with obstacles. And actually what I've realized is that when I'm coaching my clients in business and in life, because I always, you know, I, I coach solopreneurs, we are looking at their obstacles and we're putting them in control so they can overcome them and not allow those obstacles to influence how successful they are going to be in business and in life. Adversity, on the other hand, is an external catastrophic event that is going to forever change the way your life exists and operates. So an example here, I mean, obviously, Laura, you had a really tragic story personally that is an adversity, that it is going to shift your knowledge of life. You're never going to go back to the way it was. When I had, you know, lost my dad, lost my grandma, lost, uh, you know, my mentor, lost my former boss, lost, you know, all those people, um, that's an adversity that we need to heal from. And the challenge here, and so the question you want to ask there is when I'm truly looking at an adversity, how can I best support my healing? Very different than how can I change my perspective? So now here's the really interesting thing about this continuum of challenges is in society, we, you know, somebody says, how are you doing? And we exaggerate the stress like it's a badge of honor, as I was saying earlier. So, oh my gosh, I'm so busy and, you know, great and stressed out and I got so much on my to-do list and, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you feel like a rock, a rock star. Now, you go through an adversity. Let's say you've lost somebody, you've, you know, had a tragic event, um, somebody, whatever the case may be, and you go back to work for the first day and people say, how are you? What do you say? Fine. I'm fine. So we diminish our healing and our need on the adversity side because, and I think that's primarily because we don't really know how to process the emotions of something so severe. And then we exaggerate on the other side. And so from, you know, we can put on, if you want to put on a face for other people, that's fine. I'm not suggesting when people say, how are you? You go into a, you know, sobbing hysterical fit and say, I just can't live with life and throw yourself on the floor and, you know, bow down to them. Like, don't, you don't need to do that. But internally, the ramifications of treating stress like it's an adversity and treating adversity like it's just a stress or wherever it goes, because it all creates obstacles mm-hmm. in the middle where you have control, what that does is that takes you out of power. It, it takes you away from becoming a resiliency ninja. It makes you uh, reactive. It might make you numb right? Like where you just numb out uh, in the case of adversity. 
So I think recognizing and, and when I, I'm doing a workshop or a, a keynote, um, like a breakout session, I don't do like long workshops on this, as I mentioned earlier, but it, uh, the first thing I have people do is write down all the challenges that they're facing in their life. Mm-hmm. And then we go back and we say, okay, is it a stress? Is it an obstacle or is it an adversity? Because that will influence the way that we move forward and how they're going to move forward in that circumstance. Picturing those literally almost crossed wires between adversity and stress. I can relate to that so completely because in the aftermath of um, the singular traumatic event that tends, I've had other traumatic events in my life, loss, unexpected loss of you know, someone young in the family and, you know, loss of best friend, usually these, these defining moments for me. And I think a lot of people have to do with feeling out out of control and confronting their own mortality. And that can be any one of those three, depending on how you digest it. But when the one that went straight to my core, which I believe you're describing when you say like, when we're talking about adversity in this, in this paradigm, this is stuff that takes you events and emotions that take you to your core and have you question everything about life, your values, why you're here, why you're still here. Um, why, why, or how did, am I going to face life day in, day out now with this, this pain, this is big stuff. I reacted for the first many years by throwing myself into stress and arguably creating obstacles. And I did that by getting very, very busy. Now, one could argue that processing was happening during that time, and it was. You could argue that it was an ongoing event because of a subsequent trial and television coverage, and it really wasn't just a one-day thing. But had I given myself the time and space back in 2009, 10, 11, to do the emotional work that I ended up doing in 2015 and 16, life in between could have felt very different. I don't think on the outside it would have been different, but how it felt on the inside. And the more I do this work, the more conversations I have, the more clear and certain I am that it's all about how you're feeling on the inside. It really is. And, and the place that you're operating from, like people hear me say a lot, like I'm operating from a place of joy. And, you know, I was actually earlier had a friend in the office and, and she was saying, but you know, a resiliency ninja, I think like strong power. I don't think of joy. She said, it feels incongruent. And I said, the power comes from being joyful. And it doesn't mean things don't go wrong. It means that you have an inner peace and confidence that whatever does go wrong, you're going to be able to look at it objectively, deal with what's within your control, heal the pieces of it that damage your soul or, you know, being able to process that faster and not exaggerate it to create this busyness around it. So it's interesting because you said about how you got really, really, really busy and, you know, just sort of went into power through mode and, and keep going. Mm-hmm. And I think 
the, the thing is, is that when some people need to be busy in order because they can't handle the emotion of it. And so I think the key is though, is if you're going to use that as a coping strategy, which in some cases you, you need to, because you've got a job, you've got to keep your bills alive, like all of that. Um, you don't need to get keep your bills alive. Your bills need to be paid. Keep your dramatically. <laughs> keep your business alive. Keep the doors open and the lights on, and the That's people right. employed and, and responsibilities. Yeah, you've got responsibility, and I think where people miss it is that they're not doing it with intention. So now when I know I'm grieving, when I'm in a mode where I need to process something, when something needs to be healing, I take some time to put a framework around that. And to accept it and, you know, meditate on it or, you know, whatever I need to do. And then I consciously decide that, okay, right now your responsibilities are these things need to happen. You're going to go put that in. But because I've processed enough on this side and given myself permission to go out of healing mode, because we can't just stay in healing mode forever, to go out of it, then I don't ruminate and, and think about and obsess about the major adversity. I can be present in whatever it is I'm doing in that moment. Oh, and the presence is, is a key distinction. Yeah. Because when you're numbing with busyness, um, I, I see people numbing with busyness and then on top of that, numbing with distraction. Oh, yeah. So the busyness might be the day-to-day household business activities, and then the distraction is the Facebook feed. Right. Or, you know, or the latest thing in the news or the the latest thing that was tweeted. And it pulls them away. It pulls them out. And we're we're all susceptible. But I think this is why we're going to see an incredible surge in mindfulness, um, activities and organizations and coaching and, and learning and teaching, you know, self-compassion and self-awareness to balance this out as the numbers roll in on how damaging social media is, has been to our young people. That doesn't mean it's not, hasn't been damaging to us older folks as well. They're just more vulnerable because they don't have their mature brain and all of those, you know, the mechanisms to, to self-police. Right. And they didn't have the first 25 years of their life without any technology, right? Like to have a framework to work from. So what's interesting is that what was coming up for me, as you said, that is, you know, the average person would not average, like the, a, a person who is really focused on being more mindful and, and aware and, and not falling into those traps of social media and all of that would say, okay, I'm going to get off of Facebook. I'm going to stop doing LinkedIn. They're going to go all or nothing. And I find that whenever I've tried to do an all or nothing in that sort of a game, then what happens is the, the end result, because you know I'm still going to look, right, at Facebook, even though I said I'm not, then there comes the guilt. And then we get into judgment. And then when we get into judgment, we get into, you know, all of those different things that can send us spinning. So instead, I really love timelines and alarms, So if you know that Facebook and and recognizing your pattern, so if all of a sudden you start scrolling and it's an hour later and, you know, you just are like, oh my gosh, I just lost an hour. What did I do? I looked at cat videos. Then, you know, with the, I, I do, I used to do that a lot at night as I went to sleep. 
And so I would just scroll, 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 scroll. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh, it's like 1230 at night. I've been in bed since 10 and now I've got like lost two hours sleep. So instead I did, I would look at the Facebook in the couch before I went to bed, Mm -hmm. do a little strolling when I'm still sitting up, right? When I'm not in my, in my bed where I'm going to like, you know, I should be sleeping and then left the phone plugged in on the outside, the bedroom. So finding strategies to overcome the obstacles so you don't get lost, but that you're not putting so much pressure on yourself that you are never going to be able to achieve it. Mm-hmm. I, I do something very similar with the morning because we don't have uh, technology beyond alarm clocks. We don't have technology in the bedroom. And, uh, and so in the morning, my intention for this year is to meditate every day. And I know myself, I almost broke my streak. It's the 26th and I have a streak going of 26 days because it's January 26th. When Woo-hoo, we're congratulations. But it almost ended at 24 because for the first day I didn't meditate first thing. I think I, I, think I overslept or there's something unusual happening in the morning, but, um, in the morning, my meditation app is on my phone, which is the same um, conduit as social media. And so I, the last time I did this, I set myself another rule is that the phone goes on airplane and doesn't come off until after meditation. Mm, good so idea. The, the notifications. And I'm not going to say I've been perfect on this, but it's, it's setting these, it, it, that becomes about a boundary you know, setting some kind of a boundary on the space as far as where the technology is or the time and, and the, and the results so far speak for themselves. And I think we all need to come up with these things. And if we can be playful about it, instead of beating ourselves up all the better. Well, and finding what works for you. So see, this is the kind of creativity I want to encourage for people to figure out what works for you. And it's not always like, this is where the resiliency ninja formula, which starts with self-awareness, you've got to see what your patterns are and where are you continually falling down? Like I know that I can do a 75 minute power session uh, to work. And so I'll set an alarm for 75 minutes on airplane mortar on silent. I usually go on silent uh, with my phone flipped upside down. So I don't see a light. 75 minutes. And then when the alarm is up, yay! oh my God, can I go look at my phone? Like I'm so excited uh, because we're addicted to technology, many of us, myself included. So there are ways to be creative, I think, to help those little things. And, you know, I heard a speaker who said, um, she was quoting somebody else. It was my friend, Lori Hawkins, but she said, it's small changes often rather than the big changes that we often go through, like look for, Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to be a millionaire. Well, let's get you to 250,000 first. Then let's get you to 500. Then let's get you over the million. Yeah, it makes sense. Because sometimes what happens when the expectations are out of line like that, we just fall into some very harsh judgment. Yes, and I think we're setting ourselves up for a circumstance that you can't reach anyway. Like you don't go from making $25,000 to a million in a year. Like few people do maybe, but they don't. Like that's not realistic. And yet, you know, people will talk to me about like, I've got these huge goals and I'm like, great. What are we going to do in the meantime? 
I think that we're kind of sold on that, aren't we, though? I mean, there's quite a lot of marketing out there. Recalls the the chapter in your book called, I think it was The Spin Doctor. <laughs> yes, I love that chapter. <laughs> yeah. So is that the one where I wrote the story about the con man? One of the guys it, I dated? I think that's how I think that's how you got Started into it. it. Yeah. But it was but it also related to marketing and how we are sold on, you know, images of of what other people's are lives are like or now that you understand how marketing yeah. works you make decisions differently. Can you speak I, to that? I do. I used to be the person who I'd be like reading the internet, like, you know, I'd, I'd do a click, you know, click on this to get this. And then, oh, if you buy this within a, you know, 24 hours, you get this. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like 23.75 hours. I got to go. I got to go get it. I got to get it. Like I was so sucked into it because I didn't understand the triggers they were using. And so in the book, I share some of the triggers that I learned about. And I think that, society as a whole is becoming more aware of that funnel process and some mm-hmm. of that, you know, neuro-linguistic programming. And it's all very, like, there's nothing manipulative necessary about it. It's, it's our human nature. That's how our human nature works. Like, if you watch the shopping channel, they are, they are masters at sucking you in and going, hey, I want that thing that, you know, an hour earlier, you didn't even know existed. And now you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to live my life? With, like, my kitchen is incomplete without this. Like, and I think that from a self-awareness perspective and just from a mental strength perspective, we need to, as consumers, be very aware of what triggers us. So I started to notice it was certain phrases that would, like, I have a real fear of missing out. Like FOMO... Oh, you just read my mind, Allison. <laughs> Is that what you were thinking? That's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. Let's talk about FOMO. FOMO. And the thing is, is that FOMO is only because somebody's, you know, pitched you the idea that there's something better than what you're doing in that moment. And especially as ideal or, you know, with the neuropathic pain, there are a lot of nights that I pushed myself to go out and see my friends and hang out because I was afraid that, you know, I was going, actually, I was probably more afraid that I was going to miss meeting my, you know, one true love in that, you know, bar or something, which by the way, I never met him yet. Um, but I was, I was powering through and pushing through when I needed to not be doing that. And I had to look at my trigger and I recognized it. In all those cases, it was FOMO. This could be the magic answer that is going to turn my life around. And when I finally recognized the pattern, then it was like, yeah, okay, I'll acknowledge I'd love to do that perhaps, or I'd love that product perhaps. And I also would love taking care of me a little bit more. How do you recognize the feeling of FOMO when it comes up? I know I have a distinct pattern around it. Do you? What's your pattern? It's, um, there's, it's actually, it's kind of some body talk. Mm-hmm. I get I get a um, a pull kind of up through my sternum, mm-hmm. and it's it, it would be I guess a precursor to anxiety because yeah. in fear of it's fear of missing out. So it's a fearful tug. It's nothing. It's very subtle, which is why tuning into it is so incredibly effective. Then at least you can make more judicious decisions. That's right. 
And, you know, it's funny because I was, I was going to describe the pain in the um, exact same place. So just right, right in sort of the heart chakra almost, or like moving mm-hmm. up to the throat chakra, that sort of area of just feeling, oh my gosh, what if I miss it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sometimes not that pronounced, like it, it's just a frying pan, right? <laughs> like, you know, or whatever off the shopping channel or a night out with your friends or, um, but I think it can be like, I spent tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars on coaching programs that promised the world and didn't deliver. Mm. And I, I feel, and you know, it's funny because I think how that shaped me now as a coach, mm-hmm. I, I don't expect year long contracts. I don't expect, um, like I want people, like I say, okay, let's give it three months. Right. And then let's check in and see if it's the right fit and you're going to pay me monthly. You don't have to pay me all up front. Um, you know, I had one guy who was actually coaching me while he was in jail and I didn't know that. So he, his assistant was going to see him once a week and giving him like the emails and getting the answers and then sending the messages for us. And so, you know, there's a lot of people out there and I I think especially when they're kind hearted, when when you're a kind hearted person who wouldn't take advantage of people who wouldn't do things that other people would do, it's hard to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll edit out my gasping here, but... No, you don't need to. Your gasping is absolutely authentic. Yeah, it's... It's people who are, like you, like me, seeking meaning, seeking impact, maybe have tried traditional forms of either therapy or means of bridging the divide between where they feel on a day-to-day basis to feeling, you know, happiness or joy or unrealistic um, expectations of how they think life needs to feel every day are very prone and vulnerable. And that's not even, and that's just the way it is, period, let alone when there's somebody who is, you know, nefarious. Because ultimately, when an industry or an idea or a concept starts to make money, then that attracts people who are in it specifically and exclusively for the money. And very mixed intentions, very mixed at best results. And I think that's why, um, you know, I left coaching for a very, very long time. And part of that was, was, being out of love with the self-help industry after living the cautionary tale, part of that was also allowing myself. I didn't feel that I was in any position to offer feedback on anyone else's life. But in returning to it, my understanding of my relationship with coaching and self-help is that the industry and people who are seekers need really good people mm-hmm. in the industry. Yeah. So I think that we have to resist temptation to do what everybody else is doing and to sit with ideas and see how they resonate with us and be self-aware enough to know our triggers so that when we see or we're, we're feeling that pull to buy something, to get a coaching program, to you know sign on the dotted line in this time frame that we can recognize where is our gut feeling on this very 
thing, right? Like, and is it FOMO or is it that I actually need it? And so I think in order to grow, we need to be able to let go. And it wasn't my intention to rhyme that. I'm sure somebody's got that tagline somewhere, but in order to grow, we need to let go. So you've, you have in the letting go, you have provided me with a segue to something that I wanted to find a way to talk about with you. Okay. Let's talk about forgiveness. Uh, Because forgiveness is a form of letting go. And in your book, you describe to some degree the nature of your surgery and the, the fact that it was botched and that there were proceedings afterwards and that there wasn't any resolution to those proceedings. How has having to deal with a situation like pain from an event like that and what it brought, how did you find your way to forgiveness for that as you describe in the book? Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people are walking around with a lot of hate and anger and resentment and, you know, fill in the adjective, you know, the the emotion. And I was walking around with it and my, it was the impetus for me numbing out. So I had all this anger and hate and frustration and all those different words. And then my response was, I'm going to do enough to keep the business alive and deal with my clients and the rest, like me as a person, I'm going to numb out. So then when I would get quiet, I would cry. I would get too overwhelmed and I didn't know how to process it. And that wasn't healthy either because I was so not quiet and not feeling my emotions would get worse to even begin the forgiveness journey. Because I don't know if we know what we're forgiving unless we write out and we name the anger and the pain and what it's about. So I think that was the first step. Second step is I had to really look at his intention because I had given this blanket story about him that he was just a shyster and, you know, he, he almost like, and I never said this, but it was almost like he wanted to hurt me. Like that, that's the, the essence of what we were talking about. And the truth is his intention was not waking up that morning and going, okay, I'm going to go to the hospital today and I'm going to get a new patient. And I wonder if I can, you know, butcher her and hurt her, her, her nerves. I wonder if I could do that. Yeah. Let's see if that's a good challenge. Like that wasn't what he did. Like he got into a situation, something happened and he couldn't get himself out of it. And like, I had to look at him from a human perspective because I think we can also villainize the people who do us wrong. And his intention, like I remember right thing, he said, I will take care of you. And he patted me on the back before he went in the last time I saw him, right? Awake. And that was his intention. So that was really, I had to shift that. The next thing I did is I had to build a story that was actually going to impact my healing. Because the story of him you know, butchering me and just going on and on and on about that was not a story that helped me. It was a story that kept me stuck in that negative scenario. It didn't help the healing. It didn't help make me whole in any way. And so I had to shift 
I had to shift the story. Uh, my mom and I, like my father and I had a phenomenal relationship. And as much as I love my mom and she was an incredible mother when I was younger, uh, you know, my, my affinity was with my dad, right? Like he, I was daddy's little girl. And so I'd call home and I'd be like, hi mom, how you doing? And we'd have like a real quick chit chat and she'd go, okay, here's your dad. And, you know, hand the phone over and dad and I had the relationship. What a blessing that I had a surgery that limited my physical capability so that I was forced to be at home and ask help from my mother to come and take care of me when I was 30, whatever it was when the surgery happened, 32. And now I've had her in my day-to-day life for a decade. Now there are challenges about that. And she, we've created such a beautiful relationship that never would have happened without this. And so when you start looking at, you know, building those stories uh, and recognizing the next step is recognizing the blessings in the situation. Winston, my dog, I would never have met him unless I was on the highway in severe pain, had called my friend and she said, Allie, you know what you need? You need some puppy love. And I'm like, why would I need that? And she's like, because puppies always make you feel better. And I'm like, oh, I can't. No, I got to get home. And, she, and, and the road that I needed to take to go where she told me to go was the next exit, like right up in front of me, flashed before my eyes. And I said, oh, okay, I'll go get puppy love. If I hadn't have been coming back from the hospital in, you know, in Toronto, driving on the highway in severe pain, I never would have found my little guy. And you know, I know he's not a child, but darn it, he's pretty darn close. <laughs> he just can't talk back. <laughs> anyway, it's very sweet. So finding those blessings. And then the other thing is, is, is the living in the present and the future. I spent so long, I would ruminate about, okay, the pain is today. And my automatic default was to go back to the past. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd say, you know, bad word, this hurts. What do I need to do today to keep my company alive? And I would focus on the three things that had to happen to work. Mm -hmm. Very good technique to be thing and then the next thing I would be is like that jerk of a doctor I can't believe he did this to me and that living in the past is what keeps you stuck Mm. and so I just dropped that part of the conversation in my head was like okay this hurts what am I going to do today to move my life and my business forward and then I would focus on that and forget about what happened in the past. And now I wake up in the morning and my pain is so under control. It's not my first thought. Mm. My first thought is a new day. I don't sing, (laughs) but you know, it's just like whatever everybody else thinks of when they wake up. So that was really my process for working through it. And again, remember it takes some time to formulate these, these stories and a lot of journaling and writing and thinking and processing. And then it just like, yeah, wait, it's done. I release him, which gives me my freedom. Do you, do you remember that moment? Yeah. It was three o'clock in the morning. I, a uh, friend, uh, somebody in the family and another friend were going through a really, really, really awful, difficult situation, which is not my story to tell. So I will never share what it was, but I recognized in 
that situation being on the other end of lawsuit on the other end of um, accusations that could kill your personal career. And um, because, you know, ultimately if we would have kept going along that path, who knows what would have happened. Mm-hmm. And I saw what it did to the people in my life being on the other side. And that, that was because I'd been working on this forgiveness for so long And then that flipped something in me that brought total humanity to his soul. And all I could think of was him being at home with his wife and his children and knowing that the balance of his career rested in the hands of my, you know, that surgery that he did with me. Mm That he got, by the way, luck of the draw. My surgeon was um, told me to come in and then handed it off to the guy who was on call. Like, you know, he, it wasn't like he'd been my surgeon the whole way through for the two years before that, like the other guy. He, my guy passed it off. And, which is fine. I mean, that's what happens in hospitals. But there was something that just clicked and I went, Done. And I got up and I went and I grabbed the papers for the lawsuit and I wrote on the top, I signed them all. And then over my signature, I wrote, do better next time. (laughs) So (laughs) a little bit, you know, (laughs) because I really wanted, like, that was the big, at that point, the big thing for me was you can't do this to anybody else. Mm. Right. Yeah. It becomes about more than you. Yes, definitely. I, I can identify with that for sure. And then I went to sleep and I slept like a baby and I've never written him another email or letter since. What did that do to your energy when you were able to, when that, it wasn't so much of being able to flip the switch, the switch flipped. Yeah. Uh, it was huge for the energy because there was this uh, one little notch of resentment that was no longer shadowing because anger, all those negative words, again, choose your adjective that you're feeling, those cloud everything else, every decision you make, every interaction you have, every ability to trust people, to put faith in other people. And so when I removed that, it was like this new light of, oh, And I was also wiser moving forward. So I am absolutely able to trust. And I'm very aware that sometimes you should not trust. Or sometimes you need to make decisions that are going to put you in better positions. You know, as somebody who was going into that surgery... I recognize I should have checked out the surgeon. Was he the right one? I should have asked him hard questions. What are you going to do when you get in there? What if it's more complicated than you think? How are you going to deal with that? What are the actual complications? Oh, nerve pains, like a, you know, one in a 10 million chance at that level that I'd be permanently impacted or whatever the numbers are. What does that feel like? Have you ever had a patient? Like, you know, I could have asked a lot of other questions that would have put me in a more confident position perhaps, um, or walked away. Like there are a lot of things I could have done, but I think, it gave me a a lack of cloud. It was like, you know, walking out from a thunderstorm and you, and then you walk outside and it's like the sky is opened up. How beautiful. Yeah, it was. And the interesting thing is the more joyful I am, the more in sync I am, the more aligned with my purpose and doing things, 
the less my pain. And letting him go opened me up to put all that energy into finding ways to lessen and deal with my pain when it happens. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. And then to be able to write a book so you can share your story and proliferate, proliferate this message of taking ownership and choosing your course. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the key with this book is, is it's based on my story. And I know you've read it, the whole thing, which makes you a great podcaster because, you know, most people in the media, they don't read the books that they interview on. So I really uh, respect that. It's my story. Every chapter is my story, the lesson that the other person can apply, and then the coaching questions that summarize to help you go deeper, right? Like for your own journey. And I think the key with writing a book like this, because I I can, you know, I I have a lot of friends in the industry, is you want to be sure you're not doing your own therapy in the book. Yes. Right? Like you have to be through it. So when I got through the decade of hell, it was still two years later before the book. Well, now we're two years later. So it was still a year later after I was completely done everything, had been operating on a a fairly consistent basis from a a really good place off of all my pain medication, you know, dealing with the nerve pain on a very, um, you know, consistent basis and operating a company that I love. Then I felt ready to write the book. Well, Allison, thank you very much for writing the book, for sharing your story, and for joining me here so that people can hear how vibrant and inspired and inspiring you are. It's been a joy to have you on here. Thank you. Thank you. It's awesome to talk with you too. Thank you. A big thank you to Allison Graham for sharing her story with us on the podcast. If you would like to know more about Allison, you will find a link to her website, resiliencyninja.com, and to her book, Married My Mom, Birth the Dog, in the show notes. Today's episode is brought to you by the Free Your Inner Guru Guidebook, a free resource available online. Just follow the link in the show notes to download your free copy. The guidebook is for you if you want to align your business and your personal life with your values and become the leader you want to see in the world. Follow the link in the show notes to download your free copy today. Thanks for listening to Free Your Inner Guru. Remember, everything you need is inside of you.